You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. Michigan has 14 representatives in the House of Representatives in Washington, D.C. Right now, only one of those people represents people in the city of Detroit, and only one of them is African-American. Her name is Brenda Lawrence, and she is the congresswoman who represents Michigan's 14th Congressional District Congresswoman. Welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me, Steve. Yeah, I, I feel like every time we talk, we talk about the president. And <laughs> it's because every time we talk, he has done something new mm-hmm. that is worth talking about and that is uh, somewhat enraging. Um, uh, I guess I want to start with, you know, how does that, how do you deal with that in Washington? I mean, mm-hmm. you are uh, part of the government that has to interact with this president and this White House, uh, how do you respond to something like this? So I went through the stages of grief. So at first, (laughs) you know, I laughed, said, oh, this will never be our president. Then I went through grieving. Oh, my God, he's our president. Then I went through the shock of this can't be happening. And to now, I equate this, Stephen. Mm -hmm. We all know how football is played uh, the 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 team train mm-hmm. the 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 best players they understand they strengthen their body because they know they're going to get hit mm-hmm. when you go out on that field you know you're going to be hit so you be prepared to take the blow you know how to uh, fall properly you know how to be strategic so you can avoid some of them I feel like I'm in a football game every <laughs> single day and the thing that is most troubling is that when you assume the position and the responsibility of president of the United States. Mm-hmm. I I embrace the fact that our democracy placed our current president in that office. Sure. And after I got through the shock, okay, it's not my candidate. He is my president, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I have certain expectations. I expect respect, compassion, leadership, and I've been disappointed in all of He's them. He's not upholding his end of that bargain no. on any front. Mm-mm. Yeah, And, you know, to, to give you an example, like our tax plan, I, too, supported reducing the level of taxes, the corporate rate. Yeah. We needed to address that. Uh-huh. I was with the president on that. But at the end of the day, to present a tax plan that was not supported, it wasn't rated, and that now has added trillions of dollars to the deficit. Sure. And now we have CPAs trying to figure out, oh, my goodness, what is the impact Mm -hmm. on us in America, the taxpayer? Um, We knew what the impact would be on corporate America, but what is the impact on us? And that's something that's lacking in this administration is the ability to legislate, to understand that every bill and every law that you write, there's consequences. And before you pass that, you, you should drill down. <laughs> you should drill down. Do the work. Yeah. But um, so so uh, before we get too far from from what you just said, I, I'm curious, and I, I I have to admit I didn't know that you were in favor of, of lowering that corporate mm-hmm. uh, tax rate. What was what would you have done though to make up for the revenue, which uh, is you know the lack of that mm-hmm. revenue is what the, the they're saying is going to cause this huge deficit. How would you have fixed that? There's a number of things. There should have been um, 
negotiation and calculation of the percentage that you lowered that rate. Okay. And I would not have gone at the rate that he did. You wouldn't have lowered as much. No, yeah. not absolutely not. And then when you start talking about giving um, the ability to, um, I'm sorry, to go back, mm -hmm. the thing that troubled me the most was that we're doing this because will the corporations, it'll do the trickle down. Yes. I mean, how many times do we have to go through this exercise and we see it not it, happening? It has never worked. It has never worked. Corporate America will incentivize themselves and they will continue to... To find a way to keep the money. Yes, it has not. And then to say that we passed the bill yesterday, so today I'm going to give all of my employees raises. That was false. Yeah. No company, they hadn't even, they hadn't <laughs> even realized, yet, right? they hadn't realized it. So anything that they did was not a result of us passing a bill. Yeah. Um, it's frustrating. So, so other things that you might have taken out of the budget to, to, to balance the, that lost in revenue? So we went through this exercise in Michigan. I think everyone in Michigan got $68 or a hundred and some dollars. And then we said, we don't have enough money to fix our roads. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, I know there was some discussion about people saying, well, I would rather have a hundred some dollars in my pocket. But at the end of the day, then you say, well, where's the money for education? Where's the money to fix our roads? And so I didn't see the benefit of that tax cut yeah. that is only temporary. Right. And few people saw the small print. It was not a permanent tax break. No, right. It, 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 it expires. It, it expires. And then then when it expires, the roosters will come home. What do they come home? Chickens come, come home, home to roost, roost right? Yeah. It, 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 we're going to have to pay for our infrastructure. Yeah. We're going to have to pay to educate our children. We're going to have to pay our military. Mm -hmm. And we are now spending money we don't even have. Yeah. As a mayor, Stephen, I couldn't do that. Right. You weren't allowed to, to do that. I, I wasn't. I had to balance the budget, and I had to make cuts that were sometimes necessary mm -hmm. because I could not operate without, an, um, without a balanced budget. And then this is something for me to get my arms around. In the, in the United States government, we literally spend money we don't have. Right, right. Uh, you, you talk about education and infrastructure, all of these things that we need money for, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the question is always, where do we get it if we don't raise mm -hmm. taxes? Uh, tax hikes are not popular. Mm -hmm. uh, they're very hard to get through mm -hmm. legislatures uh, and even harder, I think, to get. I, mean, I don't know how you would ever get a tax increase through this Congress. Um, where, where, where do we turn the debate, though? to be able to, to start not just talking about doing these things, but actually doing them. I mean, we've been mm -hmm. talking about education and education funding for a really long time. Yes. Nothing has changed. We've been talking about infrastructure for a really long time. Nothing has changed. What's the lever we need to pull? That, you know, uh, one of the opportunities this administration has is to embrace technology and embrace innovation that will result in lowering the costs to do business in government. Mm -hmm. uh, we all complain about the military, how antiquated the systems are. Yeah. We are now being hacked by governments that have a more advanced system than our military who's in charge mm -hmm. of protecting us from um, uh, attacks and cyber, cyber security. Yeah. We, 
we need to embrace technology. So if this president, to give you an example, would look at education, <laughs> he probably <laughs> needs a new secretary of education. But he, if he looked I would at, support that. <laughs> if he looked at education and said, you know what my legacy will be? We are going to implement technology, bridge that digital divide so that we can implement cost savings while enhancing the educational experience. Mm -hmm. Online learning, um, tablets in every classroom. You know, how do we make sure our teachers are constantly being retrained and re, uh, you reinvest in them so that they can be in a classroom with the latest teaching technology. Um, there's opportunities and when you talk about EPA and what are we doing to protect our environment, instead of just slashing and cutting it, what are you doing to make sure that we as this generation, the keepers of the earth while mm -hmm. we're here, mm -hmm. what are we doing to leave it for the next generation? And one thing I want to say, Stephen, mm -hmm. I don't want to just be critical of this administration. Yeah, yeah. When when President Trump ran, he said I wanted to do an infrastructure plan. I was right there with him. I serve on transportation and right, infrastructure. Right. You know, when he is we doing We need that. We need that. And you know, he wants to support our military and and I have voted in support of our military budget. But this is the thing that there's so many distractions and there are so many inappropriate things that are so out of sync yeah. with being a leader, with being a president of our country, the decorum, the respect, compassion mm -hmm. that's lacking. And it's, I don't know about you, but it's my expectation. Yeah. I, I can remember visiting Bush in the White House, feeling respected, welcomed. Hmm. I didn't agree with all his policy, mm -hmm. but I respected him as a president. It's, it's hard. It's hard now. Yeah. It's, it's, I'm challenged with it. When I hear statements today from Sarah Huckabee or, or Memorial Day where I'm, I'm visiting communities and, and, and speaking at Memorial Day programs where we're honoring those who have died, it's not about me. Mm -hmm. It's about those families and it's about us as a country understanding their sacrifice. And then you see a tweet from the president mm -hmm. saying, oh, those people were the dead soldiers. They would really they would thank me. They would thank me for making uh, all these advancements and lowering unemployment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They gave their life in protection of this country. It's and not I'm about him. And I'm sure the families who are remembering those who passed and thinking about this great country are not thinking about him. Yeah. They're thinking, oh, They're thinking just, about their, their loved ones. Yes. Yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Brenda Lawrence, Congresswoman who represents Michigan's 14th Congressional District. Um, uh, you, you have been super outspoken about Flint and the Flint water mm -hmm. crisis. Um, catch us up on where you think we are uh, from, from your perspective, from the federal perspective, mm -hmm. uh, in, in terms of cleaning that up. Um, and, and then talk about what you think the state's doing. So I want to be on the record. I don't think the states should stop giving drinking water yeah, to the residents. That's an outrageous decision, right? I, it's, almost as, it's almost as bad as we thought that was a good idea to switch the water. Mm -hmm. um, there is a level of trust that uh, so many people and, and, and justifiable that they don't trust the water. 
they're still telling them, you know, make sure you have a filter on mm -hmm, the water. Mm -hmm. We they still are some of them are in homes that the pipes have not changed, and so um, we did allocate. So why not fund. just wait? Why not just wait and just keep giving I, them the water? I, That's such I wish, a small I know, gesture. I don't. I wish I could answer that. I don't know who was in the room when that decision was made. Um, and I will just use this moment to say elections have consequences. Sure, sure. Whoever you put in charge and whoever you vote for, you're giving them the power in your government. To make these decisions. So please, America and Michigan, <laughs> your vote matters and make sure you vote for a person that's going to work for you and protect you and look after you. But the Flint water situation, right now we did allocate money to mm -hmm, Flint mm -hmm. and some pipes have been replaced, not all of them. So I am very concerned about that. The water... Um, the switch of the water has started uh, sealing the, the lead in the mm -hmm, water, so mm -hmm. that process is happening. My biggest concern right now, Stephen, are the children. The children who were poisoned. Um, we, we promised to provide nurses in the schools. Mm -hmm. We promised to, to increase the counselors in the schools because these children are going to have behavioral problems as a result of the lead yeah. poisoning, and we needed trained professional counselors there. So many of these children have moved out of Flint. Those resources were being limited to Flint. So what about when I can get out because I don't trust <laughs> this water and I'm going to get out of this situation and take my child? Mm -hmm. The resources are not following that child, and that's my biggest concern right now. Uh, I also want to ask you about these headlines that we've seen recently uh, about children who come here illegally with their parents being separated from those parents. Uh, you know, I, I talked with uh, both Senator Stabenow and, and Senator Peters about it. it. It seems as though this is something, I mean, this is a policy that's existed for a long time, and it's not necessarily that uh, this president is responsible for what's happening. It, it, it reminds me that that we don't have a really great um, well, we just don't have a really great approach to the whole idea of immigration of treating people who want to come here, even if they want to come here illegally, as human beings, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to some sort of nuisance. Mm -hmm. Is that something we can change? I mean, is that something that Congress can change? So I use this uh, term often, stay woke yeah. or wake up. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is one of those moments. So we have, we do not have a comprehensive immigration plan. Right. We right. don't. We can't get it through. And we have repeatedly, as um, the Democratic Party went to the Republicans who are majority and control the floor, said we need an immigration plan. So we understand there's some differences, mm -hmm. but the, the issue is not the differences, is that the, the bill will not be brought to the floor for the debate. Right. The they, bill won't even, they won't even bring it right. forward. And to me, that's political lack of political courage. We are now have a discharge petition to force a vote on immigration, mm -hmm. and we're five Republicans short. I was going to say, there's a lot of Republicans who have signed yes. that, including some from Michigan. Yes, so we're five Republicans short of that. And this is what we need to look at. Because the Republicans are in power, and they have a Republican president, we have the same thing in Michigan, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that the other voices of elected people who got there the same way 
are not being they heard. They don't matter. They don't bring it. They won't even allow it to go to committee for debate. And it goes from their meeting to the floor to the president. Mm -hmm. That's not democracy. And it's, you know, if you think this is a great country and our Constitution is wonderful, it's not a Republican not or a Democrat. <laughs> it's not, it doesn't belong to the Democrats. It was a fight between those two opposing views that created one of the greatest documents of democracy in sure. the world. Yeah. And we've walked away from that. You know, it, they always say if you if everybody walks away from the table mad, then we have a good we have a good contract or we have a good plan or we have a good law. And so I want I want to debate it. I want to debate gun safety in America. Mm -hmm. I want to debate education. I want to debate, you know, we had the farm bill. We we have all these issues and that we are slapping us in the face right now. Immigration is one my goodness, these children came to America as dreamers because mm -hmm. no one asked them. They didn't have the ability to make decisions. They were children. And with tears in their eyes, I've had these young people tell me, I've only pledged allegiance to one country in my life. Yeah. I don't know anywhere else. Mm -hmm. I have a job. I am in the military. Mm -hmm. I'm in school. I'm doing all the things that an American citizen should do. Why are you treating me as if I am an enemy? This is my country. This is my home. This is my home. And then if there is a policy that is broken, then let's bring it to the table and fix it. Children should not be ripped apart. One thing, Stephen, I want to bring up is mm -hmm. foster care mm -hmm. in, in our country. Yeah. The opioid crisis yes. has separated children from their from parents. Their parents. Right. That this immigration that issue, mm -hmm. children are being separated from their children, and they're going into a system that's already underfunded mm -hmm. and is in crisis. Yeah. Our children, we are turning our backs on, and we're going to have to... You know, we're going to have to have the political courage to stand up and fight. Brenda Lawrence, Congresswoman representing Michigan's 14th District. It is always great to see you and talk with you about these crazy times. <laughs> we're glad you're there in Washington. But I want you to know this is still America. Yes. One nation under and God. It will be. It will indivisible be. with liberty right. and justice for all if we keep fighting for it. Yes. Okay. Thank, Thank you very you. much for being here. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. Congressman Dan Kildee knows a little something about water. The three-term congressman was representing Flint when the water crisis gripped the city during state oversight. Kildee has had to learn a lot about water and the toxic chemicals that infiltrate systems and make people sick. So it's particularly interesting and alarming that Kildee says he was recently barred from attending an Environmental Protection Agency summit on PFAS, a set of chemicals leaching into drinking water that are relatively new on the scene. Joining us now to talk more about that is Congressman Dan Kildee. Welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. It's good to be back. It's always great to see you. And you got you. your Tiger's cap on. I always do. Yeah. I, I, you know, they could, they could lose 120 games. I still wear the cap, right? Well, I, <laughs> that might happen, I, right? I don't think we should be throwing numbers out there like that. Sorry, it could be dangerous, right? right? <laughs> um, let, let's, start, uh, let's start with this, this PFAS issue. First of all, let's explain to listeners what PFAS is. Sure. It's a, PFAS is a, it's a family of chemicals. 
mm -hmm. uh, perfluorinated chemicals used for lots of applications, for fire retardant, uh, for the application of Teflon to pans, for you know tanning. It's it's a really ubiquitous. Substance. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Yes. Where it is dangerous. Uh, most dangerous, I should say, is when that chemical gets into drinking water. Into the water, example. right. And so uh, we're dealing with it up in Oscoda as the result of the use of PFAS in firefighting foam, which uh, was used both in fires and in training. That firefighting foam leached into the ground, into the groundwater, into the wells of families in Oscoda. And who knows for how long into the bodies of both service members and people living in the community there. So th this is one of those moments where we just reflect on the last five years. And one of the hard lessons is a lesson I guess we never should have uh, had to learn is that you can't take anything for granted. Right. You can't take drinking water coming out of the tap for granted as being safe. Which is a scary thought. I mean, I think most people think they can, right? Yeah. Uh, most people think you turn the tap, or you turn the, the faucet on and, and clean water comes out. But but we have learned, I think, in some spectacular ways that, that we ought to we ought to be questioning that and vigilant about make sure, making sure that that is and, true. And it makes the point, while so many uh, seem to rail against burdensome regulation, yeah, burdensome right? regulation, right. over-regulation, we hear this all the time. This is a reminder as to why these protections. This is were what put the regulation place. is for. That's right. Right. So, so why were you barred from an EPA summit on this chemical? Well. The, the part of the summit that we were barred from was the most substantive piece. Now, the EPA is saying, no, you actually were allowed to come to part of it, like the canned speech by Scott Pruitt. Right. I don't need to hear that. I could read his comments. There was a, the second day of the session we were barred from attending, and it was the session where the EPA, its regulators, meeting with state regulators, were going to sort of game out how they're going to deal with this emerging issue of PFAS. Right. That right. was the substantive conversation. Yeah. They're saying that I mischaracterized that. Here's the thing. They would not allow my staff person to even go into the lobby of huh. the building where the meeting is held. Right. It's hard to mischaracterize. You're yeah. either in the building or right. you're not. Right. So, I, I, you know, I have my speculation as to why we were barred. I don't think they want critics in the room while they're working out their strategy. They already have said that they are withholding a study on PFAS because they were worried about the, these are their words, public relations right. problem right. That, that, could, that could result from this. Not about public health, not about drinking water, not about the threat to human life, public relations. Right. Sounds right. kind of familiar to me. Yeah, it does. But uh, so if, if we think about it, though, uh, the EPA's uh, uh, senior official, Scott Pruitt, is somebody who doesn't like a lot of criticism. This is a guy with pretty thin skin. Really thin skin. But a really thick phone booth yeah. in his office, <laughs> right? I right. mean, which okay. <laughs> so that no one can hear what he's talking <laughs> right, about. Right. Uh, uh, you, you, uh, you believe he should go? I tell do. Me, tell, tell me why. Well, first of all, I think he's just he, he is should be disqualified from the position on the basis that he doesn't fundamentally believe in the mission of the agency that he's charged with leading. Mm -hmm. So, absent his failures, yeah. ethical breaches, the use of first class, the spending in his office, the fact that he actually used the Clean Drinking uh, Water Fund in order to give b big pay raises to his senior staff, any one of those typically would be cause for dismissal. Sure. But I start even in a form, uh, more fundamental place. 
he does not believe in the mission of the EPA. I think we ought to have somebody at the helm of the EPA that believes in what it's supposed to do. And any check on that individual's use of the authority they have should come from the administration or from Congress. I don't want the EPA administrator trying to sort of outthink what Congress right. intended when we, when we adopted laws protecting public health. You know, uh, there is this, I think, legitimate debate that goes on about what role the EPA is supposed to play. And I think being generous, I guess, uh, here, you might describe the Republican position as, uh, as saying that, yes, it should, it should make sure the environment is, uh, is, is clean and, and that we have safe drinking water and clean air. But it's also to help make sure that business can do what it needs to do, you know, without violating those things. In other words, that there's sort of a balance, I guess, that they would like to strike. Yeah. You, you come at that very differently, though. Yeah, I do, in the sense that, you know, we have agencies of government that are designed to sort of manifest the natural tensions that we have in our society. Right. Uh, we have a Department of Commerce that's intended to push business forward. Yeah. We have an, an Environmental Protection Agency that is supposed to be a check on our appetite for economic growth and for development, a check that, that makes sure that as those things takes pl take place, that we protect the environment. Right. It's called the Environmental Protection Agency, right. not the you know, uh, every polluter allowed agency. <laughs> it, it, it really is supposed to be aggressively trying to protect the environment. Okay. And then it's up to an administration in Congress to assign to these various agencies tools based on what we think the proper balance of those interests ought to be. But right. I don't want the EPA uh, trying to figure out how polluters can pollute to make the maximum amount of money and only pollute a little. Right. They should be right. focused on making sure that the environment is protected and nothing else. Yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson and my guest is Dan Kelby, Democrat from Flint Township. He represents Michigan's 5th Congressional District. Uh, let's talk about Flint and water. Uh, I had a conversation uh, with the mayor of Flint not uh, maybe two, two and a half weeks ago, uh, Karen Weaver. She did not have great things to say about the way the state is now dealing with this crisis, uh, cutting off the supply of, of bottled water. Um, she, also, she also was still concerned about the pace of pipe replacement, uh, all these other things. Where, where do you come down on those things? Well, I think her, her concerns are clearly legitimate. I think there's, there are a couple of ways to look at it, but I think the most important one is to look at it from the perspective of a person living in Flint. No mm -hmm. other perspective is more important right. than that. And while, yes, there have been improvements in the water, and yes, the pipe replacement's underway, I think it is offensive to the people of Flint that the state of Michigan would take this position, mm -hmm. that they should just take as a matter of faith that when they say that the water's okay, that it's okay. We've been down this path before. Right. And so my view has been that it was, it was, it was the, the height of tone deafness to stop the distribution of bottled water to the Flint residents while those lead lines are still in the ground. Still being replaced, yeah. right, right. So if we need to, if, if the state is anxious about getting Flint off bottled water, of course mm -hmm. they've already made the decision, so it's, it's, a, it's, it's literally uh, a decision that's already in place. But they could have done what was in their authority mm -hmm. to accelerate the pipe replacement. Now, 
The resources are there. There are some logistical challenges. They're getting through those, and they've accelerated the pace. Mm -hmm. But I think the real question is, what do we do in the time between now and when all those pipes are out of the ground? I think we give the people of Flint the benefit of the doubt that they've been lied to before. There are people who are being charged with serious crimes as a result of those lies. Mm -hmm. And until the pipes are gone, let's just give the people of Flint a break and not force them to have to make a decision about whether they trust the state this time. Right. So, so that seems a very reasonable and logical approach to that question. I, this is what I, I asked the mayor the same thing. What's the reason you think the state is doing it differently? What's the rationale for the behavior? You know, the cause of the problem in the first place repeats itself as the state has responded to this. And, and I don't think it's an explicit position that they take. I think right. there are some, there, there, there are, I think, some biases when it comes to places like Flint, mm-hmm. poor, majority-minority communities yeah. Yeah. that are some essentially dismissed. And they're treated as a problem to manage, not as a community of people with hopes and aspirations and great possibilities. And this is sort of the purpose of my visit to the Mackinac Policy Conference mm-hmm. to, to try to reset the conversation about these communities. They right. are not simply problems to be managed, which is the way the state seems to be and looking And you at feel this. like they, they haven't learned that lesson or, or turned in a different direction? It's not their orientation. It's just not their orientation. And, and, and you know, we can, we can try to change their minds or hope for an administration that has a different orientation. And I think that's you know likely to happen long before the minds are changed in the current administration. Uh, do you still have confidence that they will be able to take care of the lead line replacement along the original timeline, which would mean uh, within the next year that we would see them all replaced? The hope is that by a year from this fall, mm-hmm. which would be three full years right. of pipe replacement, right. that they will be on track. And in the conversations that I've had with the city, it seems like that's still, you know, a realistic possibility. But it's it took a while to get up to pace. The hope is that this year, this season, because it's, a, it's obviously a, a process that, that improves over over time, that, yeah. it, that they'll accelerate. Yeah. But in the, you know, as I said, the pipe replacement alone isn't solve the problem. Helping people until the pipes are replaced, I think, is is necessary. But I wouldn't want that conversation to obfuscate. A, a much larger conversation about what needs to happen to make it right for the people of Flint. Right. Because there's right. a lot more that we need to do. Yeah. Uh, do you have any ideas about, I guess, the way in which government can regain the faith of people in Detroit, in, in, in Flint? That this idea that it was badly broken by what happened, it continues to be. I think uh, tattered a little by the the, the response uh, to what happened. What are the things that that long term would make it so that people who live there can trust the government that represents them? I think it starts with absolute transparency. Yeah, you know the decisions are going to be what they are, but what what people in Flint can't have is a government that is trying to game them or work around them or manage them. They need to be just honest, number one. Secondly, I think it's recognizing um, that the solution to Flint's crisis involves more than just fixing the broken pipes. It's actually getting Flint back to a place where it has 
something to look forward to, mm-hmm. and we're getting there. Don't get me wrong. This is not a community without hope. It's there a really is a lot going on there in terms of economic investment and growth. There is, and, and that's a positive thing, and in some ways, we, we're, we're trying to sort of use the crisis as a, as sure. a launch pad for this, this city that's coming back, yeah. but that doesn't just happen all by itself. And, and the, the, the main focus of, of my current thinking on this in terms of the state's role mm-hmm. is, yes, they need to support economic development and all that, and they need to help support health. But fundamentally, what the state needs to do is make sure that Flint and, for that matter, Pontiac and Saginaw, right? Benton Harbor, that they have the essentials of a civil society guaranteed to the people who live in those places, yeah, yeah. meaning decent Fire protection, police, parks that are mowed, streets that Basic are Basic services we're talking about here, Schools right? that are not falling apart. The essentials of a civil society. If they could just get that right, yeah. there are other folks who are willing to roll up their sleeves and do the really creative work to help rebuild an economy. Now, the state should be a part of that, but it's hard to get to that conversation yes. when you're watching Flint Town on Netflix yeah. and seeing this depiction, which is a truthful depiction mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. a community that's, that's that is really, really struggling. That's a really hard to watch series. Really I've hard. gotten through a couple episodes and I have to take a break between them weeks at a time because, I mean, again, it, it's almost like it's fiction, right? You're watching, yeah. you're watching uh, uh, a crime drama or, or, or something on 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 television or in a movie. It's unreal what what life is like for, and that, you know it's told largely through the eyes of the police officers, but right. of course it takes in the gaze of all of the people right. who live there. It's, it, I think it tells a much broader story through the lens of a police department yeah. and the community that that police department yeah. serves. Yeah, and I, it's troubling because it's unfortunately it's not just a, a story of an anomaly. Of the city of Flint, right? That story is the story of Flint. You pick it up and Saginaw, take it across Pontiac, the state, right? Yeah. Youngstown, Ohio, mm-hmm. Gary, Indiana, mm-hmm. Camden, New Jersey. There's a whole subset of American cities yeah. that, for whatever reason, have been allowed to fall to a standard that none of us would ever accept, uh, you know, in, in, in other right. places. Yeah, and yeah. I think I have some fairly clear eyes, ideas as to why it's been allowed. Yeah, I think it's the 21st century manifestation of, of racism. Sure, sure. Okay, Dan Kildy, Democrat from Flint Township, representative of Michigan's 5th Congressional District. It's always great to see you. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks for being here. You bet. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. We've heard a lot over the past four years about the health effects of the water crisis in Flint. What we haven't talked as much about is the effect the crisis had on the business community in Flint. The ability for Flint to attract new people and capital to the city. What have the economic conditions been like in Flint, and what's the long-term view of the city's business prospects. Here to talk more about that issue is Tim Herman. He's the CEO of the Flint and Genesee Chamber of Commerce. Tim, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. Also here is Tyler Ross Messler. He is the Economic Development Director and for the Flint and Genesee Chamber of Commerce. Uh, Tyler, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. Happy to be here. So I had a conversation with uh, Mayor Weaver uh, a couple weeks ago and we touched a little bit on 
the subject. Uh, she was she was talking about how uh, the, the ongoing troubles with the the water crisis are overshadowing at this point some of the really great news uh, about what's going on in in Flint from an economic perspective. Uh, just let's quickly catch listeners up. Uh, I, I was I was rather surprised uh, to hear some of the things uh, she was talking about. Yeah, so, um, you know, what we want in Flint is clean, potable water for our residents. And so that's really, really important to us. And uh, if people, if uh, residents have problems within their house, we need a, a, a way to fix it. Mm-hmm. And so we're working very, very hard on that. But we're open for business uh, in, in, in Flint. Uh, a lot has happened. Uh, you know, we were on a roll just before the, the crisis and uh, a lot of stuff downtown uh, happening. Uh, and, but but to, try, to get these small businesses through the crisis that we had, we were very fortunate to have Huntington uh, Bank come to town and uh, they gave us a million dollar grant. Mm-hmm. And we helped 99 businesses get through this problem, you know, whether it was a, a business plan, whether it was water filtration, mm-hmm. whatever, whether we just had their back. We wanted to make sure we had their mm-hmm. back. And so, so we did that. So f- mm-hmm. fast forward to four years later, um, a lot going on. And, and especially mm-hmm. I'll let t- Tyler talk about the, 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 the real large investments So some of the investments mm-hmm. in our downtown, you know, the Capitol theater, $37 million project of a renovation of a 1929 Eberson Theater mm-hmm. uh, holds 1600 and it's going to be phenomenal. It's a game changer for downtown Flint and the restaurants and, and the small business in downtown right. Flint. Yeah. Mott's Culinary School is, uh, is uh, being built downtown, $17 million, mm-hmm. another 250 kids coming downtown. We're building affordable market rate housing in downtown mm-hmm. as well. Uh, so a lot going on yeah a lot going on yeah. what I was just gonna say from the business community in 2017 I think we had 15 business development business expansion projects uh-huh. that we worked on um, so like Tim said we're open for business businesses continue to grow I think the great thing about Flint is a little bit like Detroit where we are intricately connected to the history of the automobile the auto industry mm-hmm. um, but in 2018 we are also linked to the future, and that, that is from a perspective of the talent being, being uh, developed at Kettering University, an important piece of that. Yeah. Uh, they have a mobility test track that's open to companies. We are beginning to uh, develop a little bit of a, a cluster of automotive, I'm sorry, mobility companies um, from Magna, who has a partnership with Lyft, and, and their autonomous uh, cars to uh, Laird Technologies and Connects Motion. So we're, we're excited. Um, and then that's not to mention the entrepreneurship uh, stuff going on uh, from, from 100, 100K ideas and, yeah. and the Ferris wheel. Yeah. Uh, so when people are coming to you now and saying, we're thinking about Flint and mm-hmm. thinking about uh, investment opportunities or business opportunities, do they talk much about the water crisis, and do they ask a lot of questions about what's going on? I, I, I think the biggest question is how are you doing. Yeah. And yeah. you know, and and again, you've got to explain what's happening with the with mm-hmm. the crisis, and and we're in recovery stage. Mm-hmm. We're we're no longer in a crisis, but uh, so yeah. Yeah, I would absolutely agree. Uh, The other thing is that people come to Flint because of the water crisis. They have a heart for us. 
They so want. They want to be a part. I, I want to be here. I want to be a part of the rebuilding, and so we're excited. We're excited to welcome them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, when when uh, when we think about the city, and so I I remember taking a trip to Flint, and I think it was. 2007 or 2008, uh, Dan Kildee, who was then in charge of the land bank, drove me around, hmm. showed off uh, all of the things uh, that were happening and was talking about all this really great momentum in downtown. And then he took me to the neighborhood where his family home was. Hmm. Uh, and he talked about the different, the really different challenges that, that, that still existed there. We, we talk in Detroit a lot about that kind of contrast between what yeah. we're, we're seeing in downtown and midtown and mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the deeper challenges that lie in neighborhoods. Can you, can you give us an yeah. idea of how that looks in Flint? Well, you know, um, we, we see that and we are very concerned about that. Um, the, what I think Tim and I would agree on and that we believe is that a job is a, is a big changer in that. And so finding mm-hmm. people jobs and a part of that is bringing businesses to the city. So we are focused on bringing businesses to, to the city. I know that Lear, who just opened up, is going to bring 600 jobs to the city. Yeah. Over 1,000 people lined up to be, to, to be considered to for be those, those jobs. To get those jobs. Yeah, wow. absolutely. So um, we hear a lot about talent shortage, mm-hmm. and, um, and that, that's a unique thing that we have in the, the Flint area, are people ready and willing to work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we want to show people the good and the bad about our city, right? Because mm-hmm. we've got a lot of challenges. We've got a lot of work to do. Mm-hmm. And um, so we do that. And, but the, all the positive that's happening in Flint changes perception. Uh-huh. What I say to the media and whoever, come to Flint, I'll pay your hotel, <laughs> and uh, we'll take you on a tour. We'll and once, place, and once, right? we, once they get here, it's a different story, and it mm-hmm. changes their perception, mm-hmm. their yeah. image of our community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest are Tim Herman. He's the CEO of the Flint and Genesee Chamber of Commerce. Also with us is Tyler Rossmessler. He is the Economic Development Director for the Flint and Genesee Chamber of Commerce. Uh, How do you market the city? Mm -hmm. Uh, And and do you market differently Mm -hmm. uh, sort of in-state than you do out-of-state? The way we market is uh, 80% of the of your new customers are going to be folks you already have. So we focus intently on the folks that are in the people who are there, people who are there and we want them to grow and thrive and we want them to stay. So that's the number one thing we focus on. And then, and then, uh, yeah, we network, uh, regionally and we want people to know that we're a part of the metro area. Uh, and so that it makes sense if that it makes sense for them to be in the metro Detroit area it makes sense for them to be in Flint. And then I would say that you would not believe the amount of people that call us just out of the blue huh. because Flint because Flint is known. And, um, and it's because they want to be a part of something great. They want to be a part of the rebuilding. And so we, we welcome that. So we use it as an opportunity as well, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it makes, makes a lot of sense. And, and just uh, coming up here and talking about Flint. Uh, to the uh, makes, policy. Yeah, it, right. makes, sure. it makes a huge difference yeah. uh, mm-hmm. in people's perception, their mm-hmm. image of our community. Uh-huh. Uh, what about real estate values? I, I, I've asked people before about, I've asked the state uh, officials about what they might be willing to do, in fact, uh, about the fact that, you know, a, a, a crisis like this makes it difficult uh, if you own a home mm-hmm. in Flint to, to believe that the same value was there uh, 
as it was before. Are we seeing are we seeing any evidence of, re, of real estate rebounding? Well, I'm a resident of Flint, yeah. and I've been a resident of Flint for 38 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there's houses. There's first of all, there's very little inventory of houses for sale right? in, in in our community, uh, and the houses that are for sale are getting um, over asking price. Wow. Um, and especially in, in the college and cultural neighborhood, the Mott neighborhood, the Miller Road neighborhood. And so we're, we're surprised by that, but we're excited yeah. to see that increase in real estate value. So, so do you feel like the crisis didn't have an effect on real estate values? It did. Okay. It definitely but, had but an effect, it's but it's, it's bouncing. It's wow. bouncing back to yeah. the positive. Yeah. 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 Uh, how long before, and I asked, uh, I asked Mayor Weaver the same question, how long before you, you, you feel like uh, this won't be the thing people immediately associate with uh, the city and that, that it's not an issue one way or another right. in, the, in the kind of economic I wish we had the crystal ball. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't think there's an answer to that. Mm-hmm. And, I, and um, we, we don't know. I, you know, it, there's a lot of heartache yeah. that happened. But there's a lot of good going on. And so we're going to continue to talk about all the all the great things, and we want people to be a part of it. Yeah. yeah. Are, are there things that uh, that local or state government could do that maybe they're not quite doing that could accelerate this bounce back? I, you know, there's a lot of infrastructure in homes that got uh, hurt by the water. That was damaged. That's sure. damaged, mm-hmm. whether it was a water heater, whether it was a washing machine, mm-hmm. whatever. Right. And I think that we as a community have to figure out how we can fix some of that infrastructure if people's waters are still being uh, tested, uh, uh, not tested uh, for zero. Right. Uh, so um, I think, you know, if there's a way to put a fund together, to, to do something, to put some monies together, to help people fix their infrastructure within their homes, I think mm-hmm. that would go, and, and we're working on s- things of that nature. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Tim Herman, CEO of the Flint and Genesee Chamber of Commerce. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Tyler Ross Messler, Economic Development Director of the Flint and Genesee Chamber of Commerce. Thanks Thanks very much for being here. Appreciate it. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Quicken Loans has made a real name for itself as an anchor of downtown Detroit. Dan Gilbert's development in the city's central business district has set off a ripple effect of investment over the past many years, but it hasn't come without criticism. Gilbert and his companies have been criticized for being out of touch with the community and longtime residents of the city or disengaged from being part of the existing city. Not so, say those who work with Quicken Bedrock and the Gilbert-affiliated companies. Here to talk more about what the organization is doing in the way of community investment and workforce development is Laura Graneman. She is the Vice President of Strategic Investment with the Quicken Loans Community Investment Fund. Laura, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So uh, let's uh, give us a thumbnail of what the Community Investment Fund is and what it does. The idea behind the Community Investment Fund is really to take all of the different resources that we as a family of companies have and use it both 
for the business side, but also for the philanthropic side and make sure that, that the community is also feeling supported. And, and give us a few examples of the things you guys are involved in. So the biggest part of our work, you know, as a mortgage company, we have a ton of team member talent. We have a ton of experience in the housing stability sector. We know about housing markets. We know about how to help people stay in their homes. That's literally our job. So we felt like when we were putting together our philanthropic priorities, that absolutely had to be the core and founding pillar. And really that that work has taken shape around the foreclosure crisis in the city of Detroit, specifically the tax foreclosure crisis. So, so uh, there is some irony to, to, to what you're talking about there, right? Uh, Quicken Loans, like other banks, uh, played a role in the foreclosure crisis. And some people would say uh, they helped create that foreclosure crisis. So now on the back end, you're trying to help people stay in your home. So we have about 350,000 parcels in the city of Detroit. There's about 225,000 that are residential and privately owned. The rest are publicly owned properties. Over the past 12 years, there's been 150,000 tax foreclosures. Right. So when we start to think about what are the major problems that are really in epidemics in the city of Detroit, that one rose to the top very quickly. And for us, it's just doing the right thing. It's not about, you know, making up for anything that happened in the past. It's literally about this is a problem that is causing the foundation of the city of Detroit and causing a ton of human harm within the Detroit constituency. We need to be addressing this and everyone in the city of Detroit needs to focus their resources. So We've, we've, we've really tried to bring together a, a table of community partners, of different funders, of different political, um, political experts uh, to try and not just create band-aids for this problem, but also create a long-term plan for how we sustainably change the path and trajectory. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I think is really difficult for, uh, for people to understand about companies like Quicken, for instance, uh, is this this tension between being a business uh, and being, uh, for lack of a better term, being a, a citizen, being a resident of the city? Uh, talk about how internally that conversation unfolds. You know, I would say Dan and the other senior leadership have built a culture that's really around, one, doing the right thing, and two, this idea that we don't operate separately, business and community. Uh, we call it for more than profit. We're a for more than profit enterprise. We're not just for profit. We're, we're not a not for profit, but we kind of blend those two things together. And those two uh, isms, we call them, those two philosophies, founding philosophies, doing the right thing and for more than profit, have really allowed us to not really experience as many of those tensions. Right. If we're doing the right thing for community, if we're doing the right thing for our, our Detroit neighbors, um, and we're able to still make profits, those two things don't have to be tense. Well, but I think if you're, if you're a Detroiter you, and you think of Quicken, you can think of some pretty high-profile instances in which uh, things were done or not done uh, in, in, in a way that seemed to call on those tensions, right? That this is a business that maybe doesn't get us as Detroiters or doesn't understand us or in some cases I would say people would say it doesn't respect us 
as Detroiters. I, I guess I'm curious about how you guys discuss those things inside inside the company. Sure. I mean, those things are always serious conversations. We have to take people very seriously. And in, in, in any time that there's feedback or criticism, we, we absolutely talk about it and take it seriously. I think the big part for me is, you know, I'm still learning as a Quicken Loans family of companies, mm-hmm. uh, startup company, essentially, we just literally launched the Community Investment Fund about a year ago. Yes. We are still very much in that startup phase, still very much learning what's right. Okay, Laura Graneman, Vice President of Strategic Investment for Quicken Loans Community Investment Fund. Thanks very much for being here. On Thank Detroit you for having today. me. That's going to be it for us today. I will be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. If Detroit Today is produced by Laura Weber Davis and Jake Muir. Our program director is Joan Isabella. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevathan. And our associate producer is Gus Navarro. The Detroit Today theme song was composed by WDET's Sam Bobian. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University. We'll see you tomorrow.